Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to uh, listen to some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We are in the Advent season, and uh, we are trying to get ready for Christmas. And um, I was mentioning last week how, uh, again, Advent is a mini Lent where we uh, deny ourselves, we fast, we give alms to the poor. And uh, one thing I forgot to mention is we go to confession. And so we need to have a good, holy confession before we, of course, uh, partake of all the great blessings of Christmas. And um, again, it's the right thing to do. I like to say the right thing to do. And I know for many of us, confession can be difficult. It um, is one of those things that we don't go running to a lot of times. Uh, But still, it's very necessary, especially during the time of Christmas. We want to be our best when we receive our Lord and, of course, kneel before our Lord in the beautiful Christmas creches that are set up in a number of the churches. And so uh, getting right with God is important. And um, I thought we would share this morning uh, Archbishop Sheen's uh, catechism lesson on penance. And um, who better to get us kind of um, focused than Archbishop Sheen? So we'll share that reflection today. And, uh, of course, thinking of something higher and, um, you know, putting our thoughts towards heaven, I would uh, share with you one of Archbishop Sheen's uh, television broadcasts from his Life is Worth Living series, and he gave a reflection titled, Something Higher, and so I think it's appropriate for us to kind of learn from Sheen once again about the things of heaven. So uh, may I invite you, as I always do, just to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives a catechism lesson on the topic of penance. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. Continuing the sacrament of penance, we review the essential acts of penance, One, the confession or the telling of sins. Two, contrition or sorrow. Three, satisfaction for sins. Thus far, we have treated confession or the actual telling of sins, though not completely. It might be asked or objected at this point. There is all kinds of telling of sins. There is a literary confession. And there's also a psychoanalytic confession. 
What is the difference between, between any of these and sacramental confession? Well, let us take literary confession, such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau and also those who write modern confessions do not confess sins for the same reason that we do in the sacrament. Rousseau had a great pride in revealing himself. So also in modern confessions, there is almost implied such a sentiment as this. See what a rogue am I? Not only is there pride, but there is also an intent to arouse similar emotions, feelings, urges, concupiscences, and passions in the minds of the reader. Every disclosure of vice contributes to the increase of pleasure. When St. Augustine wrote his confession, it was great shame. Not pride. And he did not tell any of his grave sins. One would almost think, reading the confessions of St. Augustine, that the worst thing he ever did was to steal an apple. He made that stand for all of his very grave sins. Then he said that he wrote his confessions in order that everyone might know the mercy of God. If you would ever like to read the finest piece, of analysis of soul that has ever been done, read the Confessions of St. Augustine. We come now to the other objection. What is the difference between telling one's sins and confessions and telling sins to a psychoanalyst or to a psychiatrist? There are many differences. In psychoanalysis, there is an avowal of the attitude of mind, and particularly an avowal of unconsciousness. Confession, on the contrary, is an avowal not of a state of mind, but a state of conscience. It is an avowal of guilt. Confession is the communion of the conscience and God. The mere revealing of one's subconsciousness is never very humbling. Most people, when they go to a psychoanalyst and tell their state of mind, will often end it up by saying, Doc, did you ever hear a case like that before? They are very proud of it. Another difference between the two is Really, everybody naturally wants to do his own telling, for he knows better than anyone else his guilt. Let me tell it is a primary right of the human heart. Confession satisfies that. Every decent mind resents probing. probing by alien minds. He wants to swing open the portals of his own conscience. 
He wants no one breaking down doors from the outside. The very uniqueness of personality gives him the right to state his own case in his own words. And that is what happens in confession. We are our own witness. We are our own prosecuting attorney. We are, to some extent, our own judge. No soul likes to be studied like a bug. And another difference is that which concerns the person to whom the avowals are made. Confession is always made to a representative of the moral order. The analyst represents not the moral order, but the emotional order. And when you go to a representative of the moral order, you go there to be made better. To have your sins forgiven, not to have them explained away. In confession, the relationships between the confessor and the penitent are utterly impersonal. The very structure of the confession protects the penitent from revealing his identity. There's a screen. There's a veil. Nothing can be passed. The priest cannot see through. So impersonal is this relationship that the penitent may go on indifferently as far as the validity of confession is concerned, and he may go indifferently to any priest. It makes no difference to which one he goes. I say, therefore, that the guilty conscience wants to avow his guilt, not to a theorist of a particular system, but to a mediator or a divinity. That is why the church asks that a priest who absolves the penitent be in the state of grace, a participant himself of divine life. Psychoanalysis never raises the question of the moral fitness of the analyst. He may be beating his wife at home. The church always raises that question and raises it very seriously too. And we are never made worse by admitting the need for absolution. We are not made worse by admitting that we are all broken-hearted. And when we go to confession, we are broken-hearted. We face our guilt, we face our sin, and because we do, we have the great advantage of being able to let God in, for God can get in only to a broken heart. In an actual confession, the penitent is never cited and forced to go. He receives no summons, but he goes of his own accord. He is not accused. He accuses himself. There are no outside witnesses. He witnesses against himself as the culprit. Therefore, there is no question of vindictive justice as there is in civil courts. The reason one goes to confession is in order to be healed, to be reincorporated to Christ.
and also to receive his mercy. When we go to confession, we are apt to forget sins. If we inadvertently forget to mention even a grave sin, there is no need to go back to confession. It is forgiven in the intention to confess the sin, but we should mention it explicitly in the next confession. No one seems to realize the great advantage there is in confession as regards character building. It confers grace, gives power to the will. An unbeliever once wrote, the custom of monthly confession is a magnificent safeguard for the morals of youth. The shame engendered by this humble confession perhaps saves a greater number than the holiest of natural motives. Now, assuming the confession is made, we come to the second act of the sacrament, namely contrition or sorrow. Contrition means to break, to crush. From the Latin contere. Let me tell you what contrition is not. First, it is not a worldly remorse. There is the remorse of the world. The remorse of the world is related only to the past. It is not related to a standard, not related to God, not related to the divine life of Christ. It is a wish that what was done be undone. It therefore does not make any reference at all either to neighbor or to self. Uh, the great difference between the two is evident in the case of Judas and Peter. Both sinned. Our blessed Lord said that both would sin. He called Peter a devil, and Scripture says that Judas himself became possessed by the devil. And yet, Peter was forgiven and Judas was not. Why was that? Well, it was because Judas repented unto himself. That is the exact expression of Scripture. Peter repented unto our Lord. Judas had remorse. Peter had sorrow or contrition. Contrition is an interior attitude or disposition of the soul. When it is sincere, it is that. Those who say, and there are many who do, all that a Catholic has to do when he sins is to go to confession and admit sins, and he comes out white as snow. Oh, no, he does not. The mere confession of sins without sorrow and a firm purpose of amendment does not make a valid confession. The absolution of the priest is not efficacious unless there is a serious sorrow. In fact, under certain conditions, which I will explain, one can have remission of sins without the telling of sins. 
sorrow there must be. Under no condition is absolution effective without sorrow. Here is a story. It is only, only a story. But it indicates and reveals how important sorrow is. According to this fiction, a man went to confession, and during confession, which happened in the priest's own room, the man was a pickpocket and stole the priest's watch. Then at the end of confession, he said, Oh, Father, I forgot to tell you I stole the watch. The priest said, uh, You must restore it to the owner. Uh, the man said, uh, Father, I will give it to you. No, he said, uh, said the priest, I do not want it. You must give it to the owner. Well, said the man, the owner won't take it back. Well, in that case, said the priest, you may keep it. There was no sorrow. Sorrow, penance there must be. Remember how much our blessed Lord emphasized it. The kingdom of God is near at hand. Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Our blessed Lord said that sorrow was so important that he introduced the kingdom of God with it and repentance. As he put it, the kingdom of God is near at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It was the first sermon of Peter. It was also the sermon of John the Baptist. And penance was the last sermon our blessed Lord preached. Sorrow, therefore, is absolutely essential. And why does God insist upon it? Why is he not indifferent to sin? Because God is holy. He makes a distinction between the sinner and the sin. He wants to separate the two, the disease and the patient, the error and the student. Therefore, we must be sorry. In passing, I might say that a Catholic suffers more when he sins than one who has not the faith. The reason a Catholic suffers more is because of his greater love. He understands better the love of our Lord in redemption and in the church. Imagine two men marrying two old shrews. One of the men was never married before. The other was married to a beautiful kind, lovely, devoted wife who died. Which of the two men do you think suffer the more? Obviously the one who knew the better love. Catholics, therefore, are in great agony when they sin, and not really for any other reason than because they hurt someone they love. But, though we suffer more, we never fall into despair. 
That is the difference with the world. Our sorrow is not only a grief directed toward our Lord, as I shall explain, but it is also a detestation of sin with the purpose of not sinning again. Sorrow is of two kinds. It is imperfect, and it is perfect. Imperfect sorrow is the sorrow that we have because we dread the loss of heaven, and we fear hell. The perfect sorrow is the sorrow that we have because we offended God. When you go to confession, at the end of it, while the priest is giving you absolution, you recite the act of contrition. Notice that the act of contrition combines both kinds of sorrows. Now listen to it as I say. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee. And I detest all my sins. Because I dread the loss of heaven. And the pains of hell. But most of all, because they offend thee, my God. Who art all good and deserving of all my love. I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to confess my sins, to do penance, and amend my life. Amen. Perhaps I can illustrate these two kinds of sorrows by telling you about two children. Presume they are twins. They both disobey their mother in an equal way. One of the children goes to the mother and says, Oh, Mommy, I'm sorry. Now I can't go to the picnic, can I? That is imperfect contrition. The other one throws her arms around the mother and begins to cry and says, Mommy, forgive me, I love you. That is perfect contrition. Imperfect contrition is sufficient to receive absolution in sacramental confession. But suppose you are in a state of sin and you cannot go to confession. Suppose you're in a plane that is falling, or you're in a soldier, you are a soldier going into battle, or you're in any state of grievous sin, and there's no way of going immediately to confession. What should you do? You make an act of perfect contrition. A perfect contrition will remit sins provided that you have the intent to go to sacramental confession at the earliest opportunity. Along with this sorrow, there is the purpose of amendment. Because we say we promise to amend. Now, the purpose of amendment is not the certitude of amendment. That would be presumption. St. Paul says, if any man thinks he can stand, let him take heed, lest he fall. 
What is meant by a firm resolve not to sin is the sincere desire now to do all in our power with the help of God's grace not to fall again. So we examine ourselves and we think up ways of avoiding the fall. I find an illustration of that in this very lesson. In the first part of it, as I was talking to you about confession in general, there was a kind of a tick. I looked about to see if it was my clock, my stopwatch. I stuck it in my pocket and still the little tick went on. Maybe you heard it. And then I finally discovered that it was the electric typewriter that I had left on. I had been doing some typing, and lo and behold, the tick got in behind the voice. Now that's a confession to you, is it not? And with it, sorrow, I'm telling you, and also a firm purpose of amendment. I just shut off the typewriter. So, too, when we're in the state of sin, when we are absolved as a result of sacramental confession, we take the firm purpose not to sin again. And the way to make up for sin is to do away with many of the occasions of sin and to make up for the sin as soon as possible. If we are nasty, sarcastic, we must make up for it. Many people will cut others, cut them to the quick, with nasty remarks, never, never once ask pardon. They just let it pass. They forget it. And such a disposition certainly does not indicate, indicate a very firm purpose of amendment. If you have stolen something, you have to return it. If you have been guilty of calumny, you rectify it. Then I say you avoid the occasions of sin. It might be certain reading. It might be certain companionship. It might be certain visits. All of these are avoided in order to prove the sincerity of our sorrow. Sorrow, in a certain sense, is eros in tears. Eros is the god of the flesh. Sorrow is an intention to abandon the ego. It is hard. Sometimes it's like being skinned alive. Have you ever had an old plaster peeled off your body? Well, that's the way it is to, to peel away sins. To get rid of some of them. To take a firm purpose of amendment. But to conclude the subject of sorrow, you might ask me, which is more common in confession, perfect or imperfect contrition? I would say perfect contrition. That is my experience. 
I believe that most people are sorry for their sins, not just because they dread the loss of heaven and fear hell. It is because they have hurt our Lord. After all, it is the cross that reveals the dimension of sin. No one ever thoroughly sees sin in its utter nakedness until he understands redemption. Take the errors and the stupidity and the crimes of every day. People summarize them by saying, Oh, what a fool I made of myself. There is a world of difference between that and, Oh, what a sinner am I. When we go to confession, there is always a crucifix in the confessional box. And as we kneel there, we see goodness nailed to the cross. And incidentally, I should have told you too. When I answer the objection, why go to confession to a priest? Remember that we priests have to go. We are sinners too, and we have to go every week. When we see the crucifix before us, We see our own biography. There is no need of anyone writing my life. There it is. Nailed to a cross. I can read my thoughts in that crown of thorns. The nails are like so many pens. The parchment, the skin. There I am as I really am. Far be it, therefore, for any of us to say, Oh, we are not as bad as the Romans and the Jews who crucified our blessed Lord. Let us not forget that they did not crucify our Lord except physically. Sin crucified him. And in that we are all equal. We are all representatives. When we go to confession, we gather up all of the rubbish of our lives, the kind of rubbish that we have thrown down into the cellar of our lives as we throw rubbish down into the cellar of our house. And... We take it all up and lay it at the feet of our Lord. If you have ever walked in a Saturday afternoon or evening to a large city church with rows of confessionals on either side, you have seen feet protruding from the little curtains of the confessionals. Big feet, little feet, male feet, female feet. These feet look like wriggling little worms. They belong to people who have finally come to disown their sins by disowning them. The only part of them which is revealed to the world, which sticks out from under the curtain, 
is the feet, the lowliest part, a symbol of the absence of pride. When a Catholic goes to confession, instead of putting his best foot forward, he puts his worst foot forward. And every penitent who has ever made a confession, as he enters that box, has said, I may fool others, but what a fool am I to fool myself? And what a sinful fool I am to think I can fool God. God You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed that reflection from Archbishop Sheen's catechism series as he spoke on the topic of penance. And uh, again, I think for all of us, there is that um, very sobering fact that uh, confession has to be taken seriously. And um, I think many of us are guilty of just taking confession lightly, just um, going in, confessing our sins, but not really having that true contrition, that sorrow, but most especially not having that firm purpose of amendment to change our life because we many times fall into the same sins time and time again. But um, again, with God's grace, we can develop that firm purpose of amendment to change our lives. And I like how Fulton Sheen encouraged us to change our environment, um, remove those occasions of sin, and to uh, set ourselves up for success and not failure. But uh, I was encouraged by his uh, talk about uh, breaking hearts so that he can get into our hearts. And I've seen that famous Sheen quote that, uh, again, sometimes our hearts have to be broken for God to enter in. And I think that's, um, again, speaks volumes, that one quote. And so um, painful, but again, necessary. Uh, but I love how Fulton Sheen uh, ended the reflection, reminding us that the cross reveals the dimension of sin. When you look upon a crucifix, you see that our Lord laid down his life for us, that he took on our sins. And so sin has a price and it is the death of our Lord. But he took that burden on with great love. And so, uh, again, may we put a crucifix in our life and meditate on the cross, because I think it will develop that love between us and God the Father. Because that crucifix speaks volumes. It speaks volumes about God's mercy and his forgiveness. And so, uh, let us do what we can, especially during this Advent season, to um, partake of the sacrament of confession. All right, so now I will give you what I like to call a lighter presentation, and uh, we'll turn to Fulton Sheen's Life is Worth Living broadcast, where he will give a reflection titled, Something Higher. Please enjoy. Friends. The other day I was in an elevator in a department store. I was shopping on the fifth floor and I wanted to go to the sixth. I went into the elevator and several other passengers went in with me and 
Just as the elevator was about to start, the operator said, uh, going up, and some woman rushed out madly, and she said, uh, I don't want to go up, I want to go down. And then turning to me, I don't know why she picked on me, but turning to me, she said, I didn't think I could go wrong following you. I said, Madam, I only take people up, not down. That actually happened, and that's the subject of tonight's telecast. Oh, we have a brand new green board. Yes, it's been given to us by the United States Plywood Company. Mr. Anderson brought it in. See, my name is on it, and a piece of chalk through some angelic power just stays right there. <laughs> now it's to indicate how we are taken up. To understand it, we must first of all describe what has been happening to man in the course of the centuries. Oh, this is nice. First of all, a man has been living for centuries, and many still are, those who give a tone to society still are, living under this philosophy of life. That man is living on the earth as a kind of novitiate. And above him is heaven, which must be one, and below hell, which is the place of voluntary failure. And during the earthly pilgrimage, a man could say I or nay to either one of these eternal destinies. It gave great responsibility to human freedom and zest to live. Many there are still believe in that philosophy of life. I do. But then within the last 200 years, these great eternities have been denied by many. And man is said to have no other existence than merely the horizontal plane of earth. Given enough pleasure, the opportunity to make, make enough money, this is all that he needs for happiness. But it happens that within the last 35, 40 years, this horizontal plane here has been shortening on man. World War I, World War II, depressions have closed man within himself so that today man is locked up inside of himself. He's almost his own jailer. And just as a river that is blocked collects considerable scum and sediment, and so too, man today is imprisoned within himself. And to give some meaning to it, some of the psychologists have said, well, there are three levels here, two inside of the human mind. One level is that of the superego, which is made up of taboos, ideals, 
commandments and the like. Down below is the id, the deep, mysterious, cavernous instincts to satisfy the animal cravings of man. This is modern man, imprisoned in a mind without windows and without doors, and about all the enjoyment that he gets out of life is to psychoanalyze what goes on inside of him. This is modern man. Is there any possibility of modern man escape? Yes, there is. Modern man is like an egg. See, that wasn't a bad egg, was it? It was a big one, but I surprise myself when I draw well. Even a good blackboard, you know, does not make you draw well. I, I'm very much like a man who got a beautiful checkbook and has no money in the bank. The modern man is very much like this egg. Now, how can an egg be broken? It can be broken in one of two ways. From the outside... Or from the inside. Broken from the outside by smashing it. Socially, that is the function of barbarism. It may very well be that the purpose of communism in the modern world is to break the hard shell of materialism that is encrusting modern civilization in order that the hidden life that is within us may spring forth and we may produce a richer and a better culture. That may be under God's providence the mission of communism, unless we open it from the inside. We open it from the inside then as a chick picks away and discovers another world. But in order to do that, the chick inside must have the instinct of realizing that there's a bigger and broader environment than the mere confines of a shell. And once it knows that greater environment and tries to establish relationship with it, then it uses its own efforts to escape from the shell. And that is the remedy that we're going to offer. Now, I'll indicate here that my angel is to clean the blackboard. See how simple that is? For the benefit of those in the television audience, they're all laughing at the angels' new wings. They're particularly bright this evening. <laughs> How does man establish contact with this uh, new and greater environment? Well, all he has to do is be consistent about his sciences, and particularly biology. It is disappointing, and it is sad, that people do not realize the hidden beauties of evolution and all of its implications. Here are the various hierarchies of the universe. Chemicals, plants, animals, man. Now what is the law of evolution? If anything lower is ever to mount to a higher plane, two conditions are required. First of all, what is higher must come down to the lower. There must be a descent from above. And secondly, 
the what is lower must surrender its lower existence. For example, is it possible for the rain and the phosphates and the carbon and the moisture and the sunlight to live in the plants? It is. First of all, the plant must go down to the chemicals. There must be a descent from above. And if the plant could speak, it would say to the moisture and the sunlight, unless you die to your lower existence, you cannot live in my kingdom. You are not blotted out, you are not destroyed. For if you were destroyed, you would never be living and nourishing me. But surrender this lower form of existence and find yourself now in a living thing. If the plants are ever to live in the animals, first of all, the animals must come down to the plants. And when they come down to the plants, the plant must surrender its lower existence. It must be pulled up from its roots, ground beneath the jaws of death. It is not destroyed. Otherwise, it would never nourish the animal. The animal could speak, it would say to the plants, unless you die to yourself, you cannot live in my kingdom. When finally the plant is taken up into the animal, it's no longer just simply a living thing. It is now part of a creature that is endowed with five senses. And it is conscious in the sense that it has a sentient life. Man goes down to the animals and to the plants and the chemicals. They cannot be taken up into himself unless he goes down. When he goes down to them, he practically says, unless you die to yourself, you cannot live in my kingdom. And the animal must be subjected to the knife and the fire. But when these lower things surrender their existence, they are taken up into a creature that is thinking willing and loving they become part of a richer and higher kingdom become part of the world of poetry and art and science and culture and civilization this is the law that runs through the universe now tell me why should the law stop with man is there not something higher that can come down to man on condition that man die to himself the rose has no right to say there's no higher life than itself. Two little tadpoles were once playing in the water, and one little tadpole said to the other, oh, You know, I think I'll stick my head above the water, see if there's anything else. And the first tadpole says, Don't be silly. You mean to say there's something else in this world besides water? Oh, there's something else besides man in this universe. But if man is ever to be elevated... God must come down to man. Point number one. But there's this difference. These things here have no personality. They have no freedom, no liberty, no rights. Only persons have rights. Therefore, the animals need never consult the plants, and the plants need never consult the chemicals. They just merely may use violence. 
But no one can lay hold of a man without exercising man's freedom, and not even God will do it. And he will not come into the order of humanity without first asking man if he freely will receive him. And that was the mission that came from an angel to a virgin kneeling in prayer. The question really was, will you give me a man? Freely. Will you give me a humanity? God can come down to man, but there's a condition required for man to go back to God. And the condition is, one man must freely will to do so, and secondly, man must also die to himself. Not die to his personality, not die to his human nature, but only die to that which is evil in him. Just as the chaff is separated from the wheat, so he must separate evil from himself. That means that he must brush off from his personality such things as pride and covetousness and lust and anger and envy and gluttony and sloth. And everything that would spoil this ascent from man back again to God. That's the complete and total law of all evolution. God coming to man and man freely responding. Not many men want to. One of the reasons they do not want to is because it costs so much. It's hard on us. Hard on our egotism. Sometimes men much prefer to say, oh, I just want not a personal religion, but a religion which I adore the cosmos. Well, apropos of that, I must tell you that some few years ago on radio, I was talking about a cosmical religion, and I said, man can never love the cosmos. Because man can never love anything, he cannot get his arms around and the cosmos is too big and too bulky. After the broadcast, I really and truly received a telephone call from a woman who in wrath and exasperation chided me, saying, well, this was some years ago because I remember how she opened it. Do you mean to tell me, young man? <laughs> she said, do you mean to tell me, young man, that I can't love anyone unless I can get my arms around them? I said, Madam, that isn't my problem, that's yours. <laughs> Suppose now, man does say, yes, I'm willing to die to that which is sinful within me in order to be incorporated uh, to uh, divinity. Suppose he says that. Then something happens to his nature. And what happens to his nature does, certainly does not belong to it. If, for example, I had a bottle here on the desk, and that bottle suddenly turned into four roses. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong on this. <laughs> if it did, that would be something that does not belong to the nature of a bottle to bloom. 
And if we had a rose, and the rose suddenly said, I think that I will go to uh, California for the winter, or to Florida, we play fair, I think we're going to both places. Uh, that would be an act which certainly does not belong to the nature of the powers of a, of a rose. And if a dog suddenly walked across our stage here and began quoting Shakespeare, that would be a very supernatural act for a dog. Now, if man, who by nature is only a creature, becomes a child of God and begins to share the divine nature, that's something that does not belong to him any more than blooming belongs to a stone or sentiency belongs to a rose or speech belongs to a dog. That would be something that was so far beyond us that when we received it, we would wonder how we ever deserved it. When we're made, we're just creatures, that's all. Nothing else. And you always make something that is unlike you. But you beget something that is like you. Mother begets a child. And when we have this life inside of us, then we're not just creatures made by God. Then we become something else then we are really begotten. That's the way we go up. That's the way we're lifted out of this natural order of ours. There are not many who wish to go that high up, with the result that they're very much like a three-story house. That's a house. <laughs> this is the basement, and this is another floor, and this is another... This looks like our house on 38th Street, this one. We climb, we climb four flights of stairs for dinner, and for lunch and for breakfast, three times a day. Really, we do. And during Lent, it's not worth it. Let me tell you that. <laughs> well, some people just simply live some people live down in the cellar. And that corresponds to those who live just a sensate existence. There are some people that live just like animals. All they want is pleasure. They never attempt to develop their mind. And if you told them, there's another room above that's much better, they would say, well, how do I know? And the result is they would never try to go up. But there is another floor up there. This is the floor of art, science, and philosophy, reason, and the like. And this is much more commodious, much better living than this sense existence below. And if you tell them there's another floor up above that, and it's wonderfully furnished, gives you great happiness, down here all there are in the television shows are just commercials. That's all. <laughs> up here everything is peaceful and beautiful and happy. And some say, well, how do I know? if there's anything above. These people are just like the deaf. The deaf are, are dead to the great environment of harmony. Blind are dead to the environment of, of beauty. And so there are people who are actually deity blind. And they refuse to recognize that there's something over and above that gives us the peace of soul that surpasses all understanding. And if only we could convince the world about this other reality 
And if we could induce people to contact this broader environment, every one of them, so that they would break the shell of egotism, to contact this diviner world, and use their own effort to crack the shell and to establish union with the great divine world, then they would understand the words of our divine life. How often would I have gathered thee to myself as the hen doth gather her That's what we are, living under the covert of the divine wings, above the senses, above reason, in the world of faith and joy and inner peace and happiness, which we would not give up for anything in all the world. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you were blessed by these reflections from Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen today. And I would invite you to bring a friend uh, next time as we continue to share the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. May we invite you to our website, uh, simply titled bishopsheentoday.com, and there you'll find hundreds of uh, Bishop Sheen's videos, his audio recordings, and a number of his books. And so, whether it being watching Sheen, listening to Sheen, or reading Sheen, you'll find everything at bishopsheentoday.com. May I take a moment to thank the many volunteers at Radio Maria And you are faithful listeners who have been praying for us over the years. And so without your prayerful support, we wouldn't be able to do what we do here at Bishop Sheen Presents. And so until next time we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Here on Radio Maria Canada.